Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. You know, every time there's a uh, hurricane that's about to make landfall, the weather people, they give us their warnings, and usually people pay attention to that, so they board up their homes if they're along the coast, board up their homes, and they unplug everything and shut down the power, and they collect all their valuables, and they head to high country. But you know, every hurricane, there are those few that, for whatever reason, choose to not do those things. And they're always the ones that you see after the storm huddled on their rooftop waiting for the helicopter to come get them, or worse. You don't have to be a prophet to be able to see that times are changing, that the winds are shifting in our culture, and that it's getting less and less friendly here towards followers of Jesus Christ. So that question that I started with is becoming a very real question. If you knew, see, it used to just be a nice theory. It's becoming more and more realistic. If you knew that following Jesus was going to ruin your reputation and make you hated, would you still choose to follow Christ? This morning while I was praying, I just felt the Lord tell me this, and I hadn't, even, I hadn't had this thought until just this morning. And that is, you know, the Lord told me, I feel like the Lord told me, I am tearing down consumer Christianity. And I thought, oh, that makes sense, Lord. I see that. Because, you know, it used to be, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, does the church have good coffee? Is the sermon really good? How's the music? Is it this? Is the kids' program that? You know, do I like the lobby? Is it comfortable? Is it cool? Is it hip? Is it popular? Is it, it used to be all that stuff, and now it's not about that anymore, is it? And, and so I'm going to predict something. This morning's message, some of you are going to hate it, and you're going to find it boring, and you're going to say, that was wow. And then others are going to say, that's just what my soul needed today. God is tearing down consumer Christianity. You've heard me ask it before in years past. It's sort of a goofy question, but if heaven was a trailer park, would you want to go there? And as goofy as the question is, it's pretty serious. Because what is it that attracts you? What is it that keeps you following Jesus? Is it because he answers all your prayers and he makes everything smooth and it's the best life now and it's beautiful and awesome? Or is there another reason why you're connected to Jesus? What is it that connects you to him? And I propose to you that the one thing that, that reveals what keeps you connected to Jesus better than anything else is suffering. Suffering is where the rubber hits the road. It's where, you, it's where you realize, am I really in this out of love for Christ, or am I in this for the goodies, for the benefits, for the whatever? Why am I in this? 
And we've been looking at this little letter that Peter wrote. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter to some Christians in the early 60s A.D., so about 30 years or so after Christ resurrected and ascended back to heaven. Peter writes this letter to Christians that were scattered around the Roman Empire, and, and the whole purpose of his writing in this letter is exactly this. These people felt that they were near the end, and Peter was saying, hey, here's what you need to do. Now that you're, you're facing this, these issues, you're facing the end, you're facing this trouble, here's the kind of people that you need to be, here's how you do this. And that's why he writes this letter. And I feel like we're sort of in a similar time, and there are lessons that we can learn from this. And so then the first thing that we learned two weeks ago was that Peter said, hey, you're a special people. You got to know that. You got to know who you are. You got to know the investment that God has made in your life. God has made a profound investment in your life as a follower of Christ. And we talked about that, if you remember, two weeks ago. Like literally the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they each have played a role throughout eternity to bring you to your relationship with Jesus. It's beautiful. God has such an incredible plan for you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people belonging to God. He owns you. He's put his stamp on you. He's, God is proud. He's not ashamed to say, you're my guy. You're my girl. See? So God, that's the first one. But as this special people living in this world, the second thing is, we talked about this last Sunday, kind of awkward out in public, I admit, but to talk about submission. As this special people we're called to live in society, and we, of all people, understand what it is to honor one another, to honor even those that hate us, to honor our authorities. We know what it is to do that. That's how we, that's how we function. And now this morning, Peter says, even when you honor, you are going to suffer because you are connected to Jesus Christ. Jesus told us that suffering was a part of our walk with him. He said it in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, uh, they hated me. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm until the end will be saved, Jesus said. Thank you, Jesus. You're going to be hated. Makes me think that if I'm not being hated by somebody, I'm probably doing something wrong. Because Jesus didn't say this is a maybe, like he said, no, this is a normal Christian experience. And then Peter basically adopts the same thought. And it's interesting, you look in this little letter, and at least six times Peter references suffering, and he references being hated, and he talks about it like it's a good thing. That's the shocking part. Look at what he said. I just kind of wanted to list these Bible verses for us so you could see them. In chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief. And then chapter 2, verse 19, he said, It's commendable. Look at that. It's commendable. If someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. The next verse, he says, Even if you should suffer... For what is right, you're blessed. 
Is like Peter a masochist or something? Like, what's he saying? Look at the next one, chapter 3, verse 17. He goes, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, but rejoice, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And then the last one, he says this, he goes, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear that name. Peter, are you sure? I think that at least in American Christianity, we've sold a Christianity without suffering, and we've sold a false religion. Seems pretty clear that suffering for the sake of Christ is normal. And in fact, you don't have to look very far around our world today and you discover that we have brothers and sisters in Christ for whom suffering has been a regular part of their Christian experience since the moment they gave their hearts to Christ. And we've been insulated from it. And we've had the freedom to be able to create this false religion where somehow if you accept Jesus, everything is just going to go smoothly from here on out. It's a bowl of cherries. And that's just simply not biblical Christianity. The, the Christianity that Jesus has died for you and me to have is one where we identify with our suffering Savior. Not in theory, but actually in practice. And so we want to take a look at this this morning. Peter takes about a third of this letter, and we're going to read the whole thing. So I please hope your Bible's open because you, you need to follow along. And I admit it's, uh, you know, it's not, not typical that we read such a huge section of Scripture, but we've got to do it today because you just have to, see the, you have to see the whole thing. It's so important, um, and it's beautiful what Peter says. And so we're going to start, and we're going to start with 1 Peter chapter 3, and he starts uh, with verse 9. We ended with verse 8 last Sunday, so we'll pick it up with verse 9 this morning. And before we, before we read it, I want you to see the outline so that you can kind of, let's map this out a little bit, okay, so that you can see this. And... Um, that way then you know where Peter's taken us. But I want you to notice, and maybe even in your Bible, the subheadings help you. But you'll notice starting in verse 8, at least in my Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, there's a little headline that says, Suffering for doing good. Does your Bible have that? And then you'll see chapter 4 opens up with living for God. And then Chapter 4, down about verse 12, it says, suffering for being a Christian. Now, I want to kind of break it down a little bit more even, if that's okay. So we got suffering for doing good. That's, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 17. But then he gives us the example, the supreme example of Jesus. And we noted that last week too. For Peter, Jesus is the example. He's, he's the king. And so Peter says, here, here's the example that we follow. Jesus knows how to suffer, and, and here's what his suffering accomplished. That's chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. And then we come into chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and Peter basically gives us this little practical challenge. Hey, so keep doing good. Keep up the good work. 
You're suffering for doing good? Keep doing good. And then he ends his argument, his, 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 his message with, now you're going to suffer for being a Christian. So they're suffering for doing good, and then they're suffering for being good. And, and I propose to you, as we, we're going to see as we go through this, that you and I are, are used to the first kind of suffering. We've kind of gotten, we're, we're, we've grown a little adept at being able to handle it when people criticize the things that we stand for. But what we're not used to doing is how to suffer under just being hated for who you are. Like, I don't know that we're necessarily prepared for that one, but that's coming. So let's kind of dig into it a little bit, and we'll start right here with chapter 3, verse 9. Peter starts by talking about suffering for doing good. Here's what he says. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Isn't that encouraging? Come on, keep going, keep doing it. Because the ears of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, I love that, the eyes are on the righteous and his ears attentive to their prayer. Verse 13, he says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Thanks, Peter. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Something else, huh? Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good, but even if you should suffer? So it's almost like Peter's contradicting himself. Do you see that? Uh, I th which is it, Peter? Are they, are they going to harm me if I'm doing good, or am I going to suffer? And Peter says, yes. His bottom line is basically, hey, if you're going to take a beating, it's better to get beat for doing the right thing than to get beat for doing the wrong thing. At least you have a clear conscience. Thank you. Peter says, if you suffer for doing good, and he said, look at how he's, look at verse, um, look at verse 15. Revere Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready to give an answer. They're going to say, hey, why are you, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you, why are you doing what you do? Why are you so different? Peter says, get ready to answer that question. And, and when you do, do it with gentleness and respect. See, in other words, I know some people, some of my Christian brothers and sisters, that almost pride themselves in being abrasive. Like, like, you know, like they're jerks for Jesus, you know? And then they claim this, hey, we're supposed to suffer. We're supposed to be, you know, the world's not going to like you. And it's like they're itching for a fight. 
That's not Peter, is it? Peter says, no, 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 no. You're respectful, you're gentle, you're submitted, you honor others, you continue to stay rock solid, and guess what? They're going to still attack you. But when they do, they're going to feel bad because they can't argue with the quality of your life. Suffering for doing good, I propose, like I said, I think is something that we're rather used to as followers of Christ. It's, we've been experiencing this for, I mean, it's been growing, obviously. It's been growing for a while. But I think we know what it is. You know, you and I follow a moral code that is given to us by the authority of God's word that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And, uh, but yet you know that culture changes what's right and wrong every day. They don't know which end is up. And then they don't know why you aren't willing to change with them. Why are you remaining committed to this moral standard when we're all doing this? And then they accuse you of being haters. You know, that's not new in my study this week. You know, uh, Peter wrote this letter in the early 60s A.D. We know that. We're pretty certain of that. And we know that it was near the end of the 60s A.D. that, that Emperor Nero rose to power in Rome. When Peter wrote this letter, persecution was not all the way through the Roman Empire. It was, you had pockets of persecution. There were, there were hot spots, but there were other people that didn't have any persecution. And then when Nero came to power, that's when persecuting Christians became the thing to do. Nero was atrocious in the way that he treated God's people. But one of the things that Nero did was he accused Christians, check this out, of being, quote, haters of humanity, unquote. Isn't that something? Well, that doesn't sound new. That sounds like that's just, yeah, that's been going on for 2,000 years. The reason why Nero accused Christians of being haters of humanity and called them societal misfits is because they did not engage in the immoral, the gross immoral behavior that was rampant in the Greco-Roman worldview way of life. So Christians are not engaging in that, and Nero, of course, I mean, uh, it's like makes you red in the face to think of some of the stuff that Nero was doing. And so Nero accused Christians of that. And then, of course, there was a fire in Rome, and that just made it convenient. So Nero blamed the Christians for the fire, and next thing you know, persecutes the whole church. I'm just saying, you and I follow this moral code that is unchanging and you know, for you and me, honestly, there's just no way to slice or dice it. Homosexual sin is a sin. I mean, I, let's just, you pick on everybody. There's only one sexuality that is approved by God, and that's between a married man and a woman. Anything else is sin. And there's just no other way that we can argue that. And so, of course, culture, as they change, 
is going to say, why aren't you following us? See? I mean, there's no other way. I mean, as followers of Jesus Christ, we say, wait a second, Jesus is the only way to heaven. There's no other way. God didn't provide any. Jesus is the best God could offer. If Jesus doesn't cut it, then there's nothing that can cut it. He's the only way. And the world's not going to understand why you don't also think that Muhammad was a great guy and Buddha was a great guy and why, you, you know, they're not going to understand that. You're so narrow-minded. I like to tell people I'm not the one that's narrow. Jesus is the one that thought he was the savior of the world. You got to take that up with him. I'm just saying I happen to believe what Jesus said. That's all. My, my point is, you and I adhere to this code, and, and we don't change, but culture changes all the time. They're defining what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. They're changing it every day, and they don't understand why you and I don't change. And that is where the rub often happens. But you and I are kind of used to that. We've, we've been experiencing that for probably 20 years, 25 years. It's getting more and more and more as we go. But we kind of know what that is to be in those awkward conversations. We've probably all been in one. It gets worse. But Peter says this, you know, Peter encourages us with this. He says, you know, when you're suffering for doing good, you've got to see the example of Jesus. I want you to see what suffering for good can actually accomplish. And this is where he shows us Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, for Christ, look at this, for Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see that? So Jesus didn't deserve it. He was righteous. We were unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Jesus gives you a clear conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Peter encourages us with this message. Do you see the good things that can come about as you suffer even when you don't deserve to suffer? Because here's what Jesus' suffering accomplished for you and me. Here we are. You have a clean conscience before God. Jesus suffered it. He endured it. And he came out the other side triumphant. And here you are today. Now, Peter says this thing. He gives us an example that you and I probably think is weird. And it's found in verse 19. You see that after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those disobedient long ago. You go, what is, what is that? That's a really weird one. Did like Jesus go down to hell? And how did that work? So here's, let me tell you, a lot of scholars argue about this, and nobody really knows for sure what Peter was talking about in complete honesty. However, most scholars would agree that what Peter's talking about is this, that in that space of time 
between Jesus' resurrection and when the disciples actually knew that he had rose again from the dead. Little, little window of time, not much, maybe a few hours in that time. That in that time, Jesus effectively went to the gates of hell and proclaimed his victory over death. It's, it's, like, it's kind of like, like if you think of the cross, the grave, the resurrection, the ascension as being the most epic battle in the history of the universe between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell, and Jesus wins it, think of this as being Jesus going to the gates of hell and spiking the football in the devil's face. That's kind of what, that's the picture that Peter's giving us. And so Peter says, look, do you see that Jesus triumphed? He went through it. Yeah, he suffered. Oh, my, that was hard. He went through it. He endured it. He, and, and his suffering, look what it produced. Look at this. Look at you. Look at you. Look what his suffering produced. Here you are. You're free. You, you're in a relationship with the God of the universe. Your sins are forgiven. You've got hope. You've got a future. All of that was accomplished because of what Jesus did for us. Because he didn't give up. And so Peter says, don't you give up either. And he comes into chapter 4. And he says, so, so in light of that, so keep on doing good. That's the thing. Keep on keeping on. Look at verse 1. Therefore, he says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So Keep thinking, I'm just like Jesus, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather they live for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Anybody got that t-shirt? <laughs> yep. <laughs> got that t-shirt and I'd rather put it away. Verse 4, he says, they are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account, they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now the end of all things is near. I was thinking, boy, if Peter thought he was at the end, 2,000 years later, we're really at the end. The end of all things is near, he says. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as the one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So Peter, what's Peter saying? In light of all that Christ accomplished in his suffering, and he endured it, 
You keep on keeping on. Keep on. And he gives us four things. I love this. I love how practical Peter gets. Four things to do. You see what they are there starting in verse 7? He says, keep a clear head so you can pray. Notice none of this stops the suffering. None of this stops the circumstances. It's just, it's all about, I heard it said one time years ago, sometimes God calms the storm, sometimes God calms the sailor. This is all about the sailor right here. Storm's going to rage. This is all about you. He says, so while that storm is raging, here's what you do. Keep a clear head so that you can pray. That's huge. Can I tell you that this is why I personally have deleted my Facebook account? I deleted it. Done with it. Don't need it anymore. And it's why I don't watch the news, why I don't really watch much TV at all. Because to be honest, it just makes me mad. And you know what the Lord tells me? Because I'm mad, I'm not doing anybody any good. I ain't, I'm not praying. I'm not being a witness. I'm just mad. That, that's not accomplishing anything. Peter says, hey, keep a clear head so that you can pray. See, you and I are the priesthood. We're the, we're the royal priesthood. Go back to chapter 2, verse 9. He calls us that. As the royal priesthood, our job is twofold. We literally live between heaven and hell, or not heaven and hell, heaven and earth, and earth and heaven. See, as ones who live in between heaven and earth and earth and heaven, we represent earth to heaven, and we also represent heaven to earth. This is our unique privilege as God's people. And so I can come before God in prayer and intercession, and I say, oh, God, do you see these needs? Do you see this brokenness? Do you see this trouble? You know, I take this to the throne of God. This is my privilege in prayer. But I also take God to people. I say, hey, do you see the hope? Do you see the joy? Do you see the peace? Do you see the forgiveness? Do you see the future? See, this is my role. This is your role. And we're not doing anybody any good if we're just mad. So Peter says, you keep a clear head, you so that you don't forget your job, so that you do your job well, so you can pray. Second thing he says is love deeply. Love each other deeply. I like that word deeply because there's a lot on the surface I don't love. Come on. There's a lot of ugly out there. There's a lot of ugly not to love on the surface. I love deeply, he tells us, meaning I might not love what I see out here, but I can love what I see God doing in there. And I can love that, and I can partner with that, and I can encourage what God's doing in there, even though out here, pretty ugly. See? Love each other deeply. And then he says, I like this third one, offer hospitality. I think that's so simple. You know what Peter doesn't say? He doesn't say, that you have to cook a meal that makes Martha Stewart jealous. He doesn't say your house has to be clean. He doesn't say that you have to have, you know, whatever. Offer hospitality. There's something amazing about coming into one another's homes. Have you noticed that? There are barriers that get broken just simply by stepping into someone else's space. Have you noticed that? There's things that we can accomplish there that you can't do here. This is a public space. But when I get in your living room, when you get in my living room, those walls come down. 
We get closer. And I think that's why Peter tells us, offer hospitality. Hey, you guys need each other. You need to, you need to get in each other's living rooms. And the fourth thing Peter says is this. He says, so then give your gift, give your gift like it was God's, because it is. I love that. Speak as though you're speaking the very words of God. And if you're serving, serve like it's the strength of God serving through you, because it's God's gift. Give like it's God's gift to give, because it is God's gift to give. Give it. <coughs> serve. Love each other. You see what Peter's doing? This is the people of God. I love it. It's simple, straightforward, easy for a hillbilly like me to grab a hold of. I can do these four things. I got it. But then Peter gives us the final part. Everything we talked about up to this is easy compared to what's next. Because there's one thing to suffer for doing good. It's another thing to be railed against and suffer just for who you are. How do I handle that? Like, you hate me just because I'm breathing. Peter says, that's coming. Look at what he talks about, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Notice how his language has even changed. It's now a fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much, but rejoice in as, much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Yeah. The, the hotter it gets, the more you just look forward to the return of Christ. Like, come on, Jesus. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. I like that. Murderer, meddler. And uh, if you suffer, it just, it just shouldn't be because you're stupid. Like, that's the kind of, can I just give you the Doug Rouse version? Like, if you, if you suffer, it shouldn't be because you just were an idiot. Like, that's not, that's not a reason for suffering. He goes... However, if you suffer as a Christian, look at that, as a Christian, just because you bear this name, if you suffer just because you bear this name, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, well, what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator 
and continue to do good. Would you read that last verse, verse 19 with me? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I want, I want to draw your attention to this statement in verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin with God's household. What's he saying there? He noticed he's talking, about, he's talking about suffering simply because you wear the name of Christ. Simply because of that. You didn't do anything wrong. You're not saying nothing. You just are. Because you have identified yourself with Jesus, you are considered the enemy. Now, how do I handle that? What do I do with that as the heat gets turned up in society? What do I do with that? Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. The way that I take that is this, that judgment has already begun. And that for the follower of Jesus Christ, it takes place here. And for those who don't know Jesus, there is a judgment coming. That's a lot worse. Maybe the way you could put it this way is this, that for the follower of Jesus Christ, this is as bad as it gets. But for those who don't know Jesus, this is as good as it gets. So no matter how bad it gets here, you're still in better shape if you're suffering for the sake of Christ, he says. And he says, judgment begins with the household of God. It's a... There's a sifting that God does in the church. And if I read my Bible correctly, as we get close to the end, we get close to the coming of Christ, that sifting happens more and more and more and more. The best way that I could explain it would be this way. Jesus, well, how about Jesus explains it? He does a way better job. Jesus told this story. He told a story about a farmer that planted seed in his field, and, and in the middle of the night, he planted wheat. We'll just call it wheat. He planted wheat in the middle of his field. And in the middle of the night, his enemy came and put weeds in the field, along with the wheat seeds. And they didn't even know it until, of course, it started to grow. And then the people working on the farm, they came to the farmer, and they said, hey, wait a second, we've got weeds in this field. Do you want us to rip these weeds out? And the farmer, in Jesus' story, the farmer said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. If you do that, you're going to hurt the wheat. But at harvest time, that's when we'll separate the two. We'll know the difference at harvest time. And, and I take from that to say this, it's not my job, it ain't your job to be choosing whose weeds and whose wheat. But part of the purpose of suffering is it actually reveals that. That there are those who choose to say, you know what, I, I, I'm out. This is more than I bargained for. It's getting too hot. I'm out. And then there are others that hang on tighter to Jesus than ever before. See, when you and I go through when, you're, when your faith, when your very faith, when your very identity as a follower of Christ is challenged, it's an opportunity for you to say, why am I in this? 
Am I in this because of all the goodies that Jesus promised me? Because those go away. Or am I in this because I have become so captured by Jesus? You can kill me, do whatever you want to with me, but I'm not letting go of Jesus. You can take away my church, you can take away my job, you can take away my life, you can take it all away, but I can't let go of Jesus. He has caught my heart. He's caught my imagination. He's caught my life, and I've sold it all to him. And you see, that's, that's what happens in that. And I believe that that's the heart, that's kind of what Peter's talking about when he says the judgment begins now with the household of God. It's like there's this sifting. And then you notice how Peter ended there in verse 19. What did he say? So then what? Hang on to your faithful God and continue to do good. Just hang on to your faithful God and continue to do good. You know, the, the, the cool thing in suffering is this. That's when I realize I'm not hanging on to him. He's hanging on to me. Have you ever seen the hand of Jesus hanging on to you? I have. And you only see it in tough times. You really do. You don't see it when you're comfortable. But when it's tough, when the heat gets up, when, when you start losing things because of Christ, that's when you actually see his faithfulness in your life. You say, oh, see? Just uh, close with a story. You guys can, the, the tres amigos there, or the cuatro amigos there, the four. Uh, yeah. I was thinking we need to, yeah. You know, in uh, early church history, there's a story told about one of the church fathers. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp... Um, knew that he was going to die because of his relationship to Jesus. And he remained faithful, and he continued to encourage the body of Christ right up to the very end. And the story goes that Polycarp, on the day that the Roman soldiers came to get him, to arrest him, and ultimately then to take him to the amphitheater where he would be thrown to the lions that these soldiers came to where he was, and Polycarp knew what they were there for, and he asked them if they would allow him to make them breakfast, which they did. He said, I can see you must be hungry. You've come a long way. Let me serve you. So Polycarp cooks breakfast for his abusers. <laughs> and while they were eating breakfast... Polycarp was in the next room praying for them. These soldiers heard this godly man praying for them. Finally, breakfast was over, and these men had to take him. They didn't, they didn't have to take him in chains. They didn't handcuff him. They didn't do any of that because he was going to go with them. He wasn't going to resist them. And the story says that as they, as they approached the amphitheater and they knew that he was just moments away from stepping into that arena and being eaten by lions and ripped apart, 
the soldiers looked at one another and they literally were like, what are we doing? Why are we throwing this man to the lions? He's one of the, one of the good ones. Yet they followed their orders and Polycarp died, a faithful man. And then you know the result of that was Polycarp became like a hero in the early church, like, like legends were told about him. So much so that honestly it's hard sometimes to tell which is legend and which is true. You know, he just became that kind of legendary figure in the early church. So much so that the first, that the early Christians, they, they were literally volunteering for martyrdom because they wanted to be just like Polycarp. They wanted to do what he did. Like kids were dreaming, I'm going to grow up and be like Polycarp someday. And, and it got to be so much so that the, that the church fathers, they actually had to institute this little rule that said, okay, listen, time out. You can't volunteer for martyrdom, okay? Now, if it happens, don't resist it, but don't volunteer for it, okay, everybody? Literally, that was one of their rules. Can you imagine that as a church? Okay, everybody, listen, you're not allowed to volunteer to die. That's how they were, all because of Polycarp's example. Guess what I'm saying is he's an example for us to follow of a guy that remained uh, gentle, respectful, submitted, consistent, was not going to bow, was not going to cave, was not going to change who he was, but neither was he going to be, you know, against and be abrasive and punch his accusers in the face. That wasn't him. Class all the way. Class all the way. I believe that that's the heart of Peter's message to you and me today. What's Peter tell us to do? Four things, didn't he? Four things. So what do I do in response to this? Peter says, well, keep a clear head so you can pray. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Third thing, he says, offer hospitality. Start hanging out more because you need to do that. Start hanging out more. And fourth, he says, give the gift like you got. Give the gift you've got like it's coming from God, because it is. Give it. Simple. Hmm. Friends, you know, part of the reason why we're doing Rooted and starting that in two weeks is because uh, as your pastor, I have been very concerned that, we're, that our roots are shallow. And I see the winds of culture increasing. And if you are not grounded and rooted in the Word of God and in Christ, then you're going to get blown away, and I don't want that to happen. And um, so... There's two things that we need to get rooted. We need the Word of God, but you also need Christian community. Did you see that, what Peter gave you there? Offer hospitality, love each other deeply. You need both to be rooted and grounded. And you can't just do this on your own. You're not going to last if you try to do it on your own. You and Jesus against the world. That's not going to work. we got to lock in together, do it together. And so that's why.
And I want to say this, if you're not part of a, some of you are already part of a life group and the life groups are just going to continue and do, they're just going to do rooted. But if you're not in one, we want to get you in one. And that's also part of the purpose of this. So if you're not in a life group committed, then we're going to help you to get connected. We're actually starting groups that are specifically going after, they're doing the rooted so that you can participate and join in. So if you're not part of a group, sign up so that we can help get you connected in so that for the 10 weeks you can be engaged with it, okay? So let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.